So far in the first three, three verses of the second chapter, we've been taken by Paul into the valley of Ezekiel's dry bones. You remember reading that in the prophet. And just as there, here, we're taught that if the dead will live again, they must be raised up. And that will be the Lord's doing. The spirit of the living God must come and breathe upon these slain. Those that have been slain by and in their trespasses and sins and rightly now the objects of the wrath of a holy God. Before we move on into verse 4 and 5 this morning, I wanted to speak just a little bit more about the wrath of God. We speak often, probably can't speak too much about the love of God. But coinciding with what we read out of Matthew 25 this morning, the scriptures speak clearly with distinct language concerning this place of torment, this place called hell in the scriptures, Gehenna. The wrath of God is real. The wrath of God will come in its fullest sense. And the wrath of God really is here now upon those who are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. I want to give you these words that I read this past week by Ian Murray. Some of you may recognize that name. He is most notable for all of the biographies that he has written, published by the Banner of Truth. If you love Christian biography, you will really enjoy Ian Murray. But he's also written a commentary on the book of Ephesians that I'm reading. And he reminds us of this concerning the wrath of God. He says, The wrath of God is not arbitrary, nor is it easily provoked. Rather, it is his holy, just, and righteous response to sinful rebellion and sinful failure. God holds out His hands all day long to sinners, and He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But He is also true to who He is. He is a God merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. You might remember those words out of Exodus 34 where the Lord is making Himself known to Moses. That's not all of those verses, is it? Not only does he say there that he is merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, he says that he by no means clears the guilty. By no means clears the guilty. There is something that must be done with your sin. And I'm speaking to you, whoever you are. Something must happen with your sin. Either Christ will make atonement for it in your place and His righteousness will be imputed to you or else you will be left to try to work out this sin of yours before God so that He will not hold it against you. That second thing is impossible. You cannot make payment for your own sin. Christ must intervene. Indeed, Christ has intervened. So when we look at these first three verses, 
This is the tragic predicament that has engulfed all of humanity. There is no one excluded from these first three verses. There is no one excluded from being found in Adam and in Adam's sin and then also in their own committed acts of sin. Again, I'm going to quote from Ian Murray. He says, The horror of sin is not that it messes up my life. And let me interject there. Sin will mess up your life. Sin will turn your life upside down. That's not the only horror of it, he says. Nor that it dismantles and debases the moral fabric of society. And again, we add to that absolutely sin has dismantled and debased the moral fabric of society. That's always been the case, and it's a living reality in the society in which we live. But he says, and he ends here by saying, the absolute horror of sin is that it is against a holy God. David reiterates that in Psalm 51, verse 4, where he says, against you... And you only have I sinned and done evil in your sight. So let's get that clear. All sin is committed against a holy God. That's not to say that we can't sin against one another. Surely we do. We misspeak. We act with pride and selfishness. We have outbursts of wrath. We can become angry. And all of that sin against our our fellow mankind, regardless of the closeness or the distance of the relationship ultimately can be boiled down into sin against the Holy God. And he will, in his justice, enact wrath against it. Either against Christ in your place or against you in your place. Christ in your stead as your substitute bearing your Sin and the wrath of God against it are you in your place, bearing your own consequence. And so when we look at these first three verses of Ephesians 2 again, we're reminded that these verses represent God's description of fallen humanity. This is not my description. This is not some other reform-minded preacher's description. This is not the description that is found in Calvin's Institutes or in the 1689 Confession or any other thing. This is the revelation from God of how he views and the enslavement in sin that all mankind has been thrust by being in Adam. This description is given to us by the Holy Spirit of the living God. This is his estimation of the sin of mankind. Will you hear it? Do you hear it? If so, what will you do? Listen again to these first three verses. And I'm going to skip over the, the italicized words if you have them in verse 1. Because that doesn't come in its original until verse 5, which we're going to see today. But listen again to the description of the Holy Spirit of those that are 
outside of Christ. Those that have not been yet awakened to faith and trust in Christ. Verse 1 says, And you who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. All are confined here. There has been no one throughout history that has found themselves outside of the first three verses of Ephesians 2 in their natural condition. The most depraved find themselves here. The morally upright outside of Christ find themselves here. The self-righteous find themselves here. Every person finds themselves right here in these three verses. And Paul tells us again that we are enslaved to the world, the flesh, and the devil. Right here. We sing occasionally an old hymn. It's in our folder because it's not printed in many hymn books for some reason. Written in 1776 by a man named Jehoiada Brewer. The title of the hymn is Hail, Sovereign Love. And you might remember the, I think it's the second or third verse of that hymn. He writes and he captures so well the essence of the first three verses of Ephesians 2. He says, enwrapped in thick Egyptian night. You remember those words? And fond of darkness more than light. Madly I ran my sinful race. Seemingly secure without a hiding place. Against the God who rules the sky, I fought with hand uplifted high, even despising the mention of his grace, too proud to seek a hiding place. So what we read in these first three verses is is the description of what it means to be enwrapped or enslaved in the thickness and the darkness of spiritual night and deadness. Perhaps we ask the question then, who can be saved? We might even ask the question, will any be saved? Is it possible that any might come to life after having been exposed to such death? And again, the real horror of these three verses is that we are spiritually dead and that we are held there by forces greater than we. The prince of the power of the air, Satan himself, the devil, the adversary, the one who is opposed to Christ in every way possible. We are enslaved there to him. That spirit of his is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's why we live out according to what Paul calls the lust of our flesh, and we fulfill the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and why in the end of this we are, by nature, children of wrath, just as the others. Is there any hope for mankind in this condition? Thank God there is, right? When you get to verse 4, when you get to verse 4, into this 
sinful abyss, this black, eternally dark pit, the mercy of God comes. If you are here this morning and you are in Christ, it's only because His mercy came and found you and awakened you to your sinful condition and drew you with cords of love to the Savior. Notice the first two words of verse 4. You know them. You read them. It simply says, but God. Let me show you and remind you what these two great words and all of theological meaning behind them, all of the great doctrine which follows, let me show you where they lie in the economy of God. This is not hard to see. You go back to the third verse. By nature, children of wrath. Then we have the two words, but God, who was rich in mercy. So here the distinction is made between the objects of his wrath and the objects of his mercy. The only way that we are brought out from being the object of God's wrath into the object of his mercy is by his intervention, by his doing. And notice this that this mercy expressed in verse 4 has not come to the prepared. It has not come to the self-righteous. It has not come to those who are in any way looking for it. Just like a lightning bolt out of heaven that pierces the black sky. We saw this last night if you were awake about midnight, right? This lightning bolt from heaven comes and... explodes and lights up the dungeon. That's the mercy of God arriving onto the scene of the deadness of mankind. And here, this mercy is not a response to anything. The intervention of God's mercy is not in response to a request. It's not in response to any other thing other than the initiative of God. We're told back in the first chapter, right, that He has done what He has done for His elect according to the good pleasure of His will. The intervention of God is summarized in two words at the beginning of verse 4, but God. He has made a way. But before Paul details that way, he gives us the attributes or the characteristics that have led God to act in such a great way towards those who were dead in sin. And basically he says, and these are the two things we're going to look at a little more closely this morning, the richness of his mercy and his great love. Again, we go back to Exodus 34. How did God relate himself to Moses? What is the very first thing that he used to describe himself to Moses out of all the thousands of ways, out of all the attributes, out of all the characteristics that would be unfolded in Scripture when the time came for him to give a clear 
representation and revelation of who he is, he said to Moses, I am a God merciful. And then he goes on to say, and gracious. The same order is maintained by Paul here in the fourth verse. Mercy, then grace. How can we read these first three verses of Ephesians 2 and look at this fourth verse without having Lazarus come to mind? And I'm not talking about the rich man in Lazarus. I'm speaking about Jesus' friend, Lazarus who had died, who had been entombed. He had been there so many days now. His sisters said, you know, Lord, don't get any closer. You're going to begin to smell the stench of his decomposing body. What happened there that day when Christ intervened in Lazarus' condition is a physical picture of verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 2. Notice that Lazarus, being physically dead, was unable to make any requests of Jesus. The Son of God, His Creator, the one with all might and power, the one full of grace and truth, was standing just a few feet away outside the tomb, and yet Lazarus was completely unaware of it, completely unable to cry for mercy. He was completely unable to do anything but to remain dead. It's interesting if you go back to John 11, I'm not asking you necessarily to do that here, but go back to John 11, what Jesus does really makes no sense to the rational mind. It would make more sense if Jesus went and touched Lazarus, wouldn't it? Maybe. Jesus talks to a dead man. And what he says basically is very simple. He, he cries out. And if you go back to John 11 and you look at the words used to describe the cry of Jesus, the word there is with a loud voice, with a megas voice, a mega voice, Jesus most likely reaching the height of his vocal capacity, says to Lazarus, entombed and dead there, Lazarus, come forth. And we know the rest of the story. We know that Lazarus comes forth, still wrapped in his grave clothes, right? He's unwinding them as he makes his way out of the tomb. But it's interesting here. This is the same thing that the preaching of the gospel does. The preaching of the gospel, the very power of God, cries out to dead men who can't hear. And it calls them to come forth. That's the mystery of gospel preaching. That's why Paul says that preaching seems to the logical mind to be utter foolishness. Why would you preach and cry out to someone who cannot hear you? To someone who has no ear for what you're saying. For someone who has no appetite or desire for this gospel. Why do you preach? Well, simply because the Bible tells us to preach to those who cannot hear. Because in the very preaching, ears are opened. Life is given. Sight is given. 
And without the preaching, this is not going to happen. Whether it's a formal setting like this or whether it's you preaching to your neighbor in your living room at his front door on the sidewalk in front of the store, it doesn't matter where the gospel preaching takes place, but it is the means that God uses to awaken people to their sin. But please note that Paul says the foolishness of preaching and not the preaching of foolishness. There's a big difference. There is a lot of preaching of foolishness. Paul is talking about giving a a clear gospel, as clear as you can make it, all the while understanding the result is not resting on your shoulders. That's one of the most crippling things about evangelism in any sphere or any realm is thinking that you and I are responsible for the outcome. If that were true, none would be saved. I do not have the ability, nor do you, to make a dead man hear the truth of the gospel. But through our feeble words so long as they are in accord with the truth of the Scripture, then the Lord uses that announcement of the Gospel to awaken the spiritually dead to come to Him. So come forth. Hear the Gospel. Be saved from your sin. Have the mercy of God explode into the darkness of of the cave, the sepulcher in which you are living. So let's look at these two things that Paul brings to the, to the forefront before he begins to, in great detail, describe this whole matter of salvation by grace. Two things are brought up. Let's look first at God's being rich in mercy. How would you define the word mercy? I like this definition. God's compassion and pity for helpless sinners. God's compassion and pity for helpless sinners. So let's read it in that way in verse 4. But God who is rich in compassion and pity for helpless sinners, because that's what the first three verses describe. Notice that he is rich in this. He does not just possess mercy. He possesses an abundance of mercy, and the wonder is that he is willing to dispense it. Aren't you thankful that God is not stingy with his mercy? And notice that the dispensing of His mercy is at His own divine prerogative. We referenced Romans chapter 9 once already this morning in our first hour. Dare we go there again? Two times within a couple of hours? Let's do. Romans chapter 9, verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. And then the reasoning of Paul. So then, it is not of him who wills. What is not of him who wills? 
His salvation is not of him who wills, right? So, nor is it of him who runs with great activity, but it is of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up that I may show my power in you that my name may be declared in all the earth. And then verse 18, therefore he has mercy on whom he wills. And he hardens whom he wills. Is that your view and understanding of God? That's the biblical description of him. And notice this also. He need not be persuaded to be merciful. He need not be persuaded. There is nothing that happens in the scriptures between verses 3 and 4. There is no begging. There is no pleading. There is just the entrance of God in mercy and love. You might remember in Luke, I believe it's chapter 4, Jesus is in his hometown of Nazareth. He goes into the meeting, into the synagogue. Someone hands him a scroll. The scroll has already been opened. And it's opened to Isaiah chapter 61. And Jesus begins to read. And he reads these words. And these words are representative of his rich mercy. Notice in Isaiah 61 verses 1 through 3 that Jesus read in Nazareth say, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to the captives. To proclaim freedom to those who are being held against their will. To proclaim freedom to those who were being held captive to sin, by sin, by Satan, according to the prince of the power of the air, walking according to their lusts. And when we keep reading there, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Let me restate something that I just said because it didn't accord with the truth. I said being held captive against their will. They were being held captive Because that was their will. That's who they were. That's who every unbeliever is. He is living according to his will. But back to this sentence here of Jesus in Isaiah 61 and Luke chapter 4. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console who, those who mourn in Zion. And then we get to this great phrase, which is full of gospel truth, to give them beauty for ashes. That's what the first two words of Ephesians verse 4 represent. First three verses, nothing but ash. Nothing but the smoldering mass of humanity dead in sin. But God takes that ash 
and replaces it with beauty. But that's not the only great image he paints. He says, the oil of joy for mourning. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. That they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. What is verse 4 all about? It's about the glory of God. About him being the one recognized for intervening in the lives of those who were dead in sin. It says again that he is rich in mercy. But then we're given this, this word because, and really the, the meaning or the reason, excuse me, comes out. Why has he acted in them in the richness of mercy? Well, Paul says, secondly, because of his great love with which he loved us. The unlovable, now the objects of love itself. We gave some definition to mercy. Let's try to give some definition to love. It's been defined in this way. A divine disposition that sees someone infinitely precious. That sees, that sees someone infinitely precious in spite of their sin. That's the way that we are called to love one another, by the way. This agape type of love, husband to wife, wife to husband, church member to church member. Seeing in someone sinful something that is infinitely precious. This is the great love God has loved his people with. And I love this, this phrase. I'm not familiar with this name. I read this and it was a quotation in another person's commentary, so I don't know who this is. He says, this is by no means the love of mere indulgence. This love of God does not blind him to the sin present. Neither does the sin present so alienate the love as that no further thought of kindness or provision for grace can be hoped for. So in that mouthful of words, what's the, what's the thought behind it? This love that God has loved, lost mankind with, he's not blind to the sin. He's not just indulging a sinful people. We know that because of John 3 and a myriad of other verses in the Bible, right? For God so loved the world that he gave. That he gave. And notice that Paul says, because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in trespasses. Might make you think of other verses out of Romans chapter 5. Verses 6 through 9. Which say, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. 
For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God has demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Even when we were dead in trespasses. This is when he acted toward mankind with such great love. We ask the question, who then can be saved? And we answer it with man, no one, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And if we combine these two things, we ask the question, what exactly is Paul trying to convey to us that God has done in the richness of his mercy and the greatness of his love? How would you answer that question from verse 4 and 5? What is the exact thing, the precise thing that he has done in the richness of his mercy and the greatness of his love? Well, here is where the main verb of this whole paragraph comes out. That's why we skipped over it in verse 1. It's there in italics. It's not part of the original. But here it is in verse 5. He has made us alive together with Christ. This is Paul giving a, a full answer to and a full description of what he began back in verse 19 of chapter 1. He says, remember there he's praying, I want you to know the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Fast forward through a few verses and we get to the richness of his mercy, the greatness of his love, which has done what? It has made us alive together with Christ. He has raised the spiritually dead. He has breathed the breath of life into the dry bones. How else may we categorize this? Well, what happens in verse 4 and 5, Paul says it differently in Colossians 1, 13 and 14, but the same thought is behind it, the same truth, the same rich mercy and great love when Paul says, speaking of the Father's work, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. That's what's happened in verse 4 and 5 of Ephesians 2. Those first two words, but God, is God's reaching down in mercy and love and taking you and taking me, the word here is conveying or translating. He is taking us from the power of darkness. Notice those are Paul's words. The power of darkness represented in the first three verses of this chapter that have mankind enslaved to them. That need a greater power to reach down through, to burst through and move them. He is conveying from one kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of His love 
speaking of this son of his love, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Please hear me. If you're ever going to get out of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, God's going to have to move you. You're going to have to be moved. You are going to have to be conveyed, translated. How? Isn't that the question of the hour? How? By faith in Christ. By believing the gospel. By realizing, yes, you are under the just wrath of a holy God by nature. You're an object of his wrath. And unless you come to Christ, you will remain there. And according to Jesus in John 8, you will die in your sins and then you will bear the full responsibility for your sin against a holy God, which is eternal damnation. That's how. Come to Christ. Don't get so entangled in the high theology that rests behind these verses. Just look at the simplicity of them. Look at the simplicity of the gospel message. How am I saved? By coming to faith in Christ. Turning from my sin. Turning and embracing the Savior, the Son of God, who has loved me and gave himself for me, who bore my sin upon the cross of Calvary, who endured hell on earth in my place, who was forsaken of his Father and who felt that keenly, who sweat great drops of blood the night before his crucifixion. Now do we understand something of this great love with which he has loved us. It's unlike any other love known to mankind. It transcends our ability to understand. Why would he love me this way? No answer. There is no answer. Why would he love you this way? There is no answer. Don't start compiling answers. Don't start giving a list because then you're totally missing the point. There is nothing that you could do to make yourself lovable. But yet, he has lavished that love upon you. Anyway, I want to give you just a, just a peek to where if the Lord tarries in his return and we meet here again next week, just a peek at what we'll look at. I want you to notice this, this repeated word. It's the word together. The next few verses contain this word three times. Made us alive together with Christ. Verse 6. Raised us up together. Also in verse 6. Made us sit Together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There is nothing about your salvation that is owing to yourself. 
It's only and always you attached to Jesus by faith together, together, together. Interestingly, these three things coincide with the resurrection and ascension and the session of Jesus Christ. How so? Well, Paul says first, he made us alive, spiritual resurrection. He has raised us up with him. We have ascended into heaven with Christ. Have we already forgotten how Paul began this letter? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ right now. Realized more fully later, but we have been spiritually raised to life and we have ascended into the heavenly places with Christ. But then he has also made us sit together. Christ being seated at the right hand of his Father is his session, his work being finished. What a mercy and almost mind-boggling thought to know that you and I, once defined in every way by the first three verses, have now come to be resurrected with Christ, ascended into heaven with Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father with Christ. Hallelujah. What will you do? Will you spurn this merciful and loving God again? I pray you will not. I pray there are some of you sitting here this morning that are like I was so many years ago as a middle teen. The Lord put someone in front of me Sunday after Sunday who would open the scriptures and preach from it. Conviction would just be heaped on my head almost every week. And I would sit there and I would endure that moment because I knew it would pass. If I can just get through the next five minutes, get out of here and be distracted by something, this conviction will flee. And it did for the most part, until the next week. The scriptures were opened, the gospel was preached, and there it was sitting right on top of my head again. What do I do? I can only thank God that at a point in time, that conviction became so heavy that I could do nothing but come to Christ. I didn't care anymore. What had kept me from coming? Pride had kept me from coming. Young men, that is your greatest enemy outside of Satan himself is your pride. You are not ten feet tall and bulletproof. Ask me how I know. I once thought myself to be. Now I'm almost 50 years old. My hair's falling out. My strength is leaving. That's going to be you. In that amount of time, that will be you. Not to mention that you're not even assured that you will be back next week. That's the thing that really drives us to tears, isn't it? The realization of how often we spurned the grace of God 
how often we took for granted that he would in grace again seat us before someone who would preach the gospel and bring conviction again and give me another opportunity and maybe perhaps that opportunity I will take it. Your life is a vapor. You are like a flower of the field who is here today and gone tomorrow. Today is all you got. Today is all you're assured of. God has acted towards you in rich mercy and with great love. Do not, to your own eternal detriment, spurn Him again. Yes, I'll go so far as to beg you. Don't do it. It's the most foolish thing that you will ever do is ignore the conviction of the Holy Spirit to come to Christ. So if you feel that conviction of the Spirit, lay down every obstacle. Come to Christ. You will not regret it. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for your intervention. We're thankful that you are a God rich in mercy. And you've acted towards us in great love. Father, I pray for those who may even now be under the conviction of the Spirit. Lord, we thank you for that work. None would be saved without it. Whatever reasoning is in their mind to keep them from coming to Christ, I pray you would tear it down. You would remove it. Let Christ become so beautiful and glorious to them that nothing could stand in their way. That they must have Him. The glory of the Gospel is that He will have them. We thank You for it. In Christ's name, Amen.